On the line with us today, John Eichard, the emeritus professor uh, at the University of Missouri. Um, really, you're, you're in agriculture. What's the formal title, John? It's uh, agricultural economics. So, agricultural but, you know, economics, right? And that's and that's a fascinating subject. One that you've kind of come, I, I don't know, full circle is the right word to say, because at one time you were a proponent of the very thing now that you're opposed to. Is that right? And uh, that's correct. You know, I, I've got my, uh, I grew up on a small dairy farm down in southwest Missouri, but I was able to go to the University of Missouri and eventually with a break to work in private industry. I came back and got my PhD from there, but I was trained as a traditional agricultural economist. You know that farming had to be a, a business rather than a way of life. You had to farm for the economic bottom line that led to you know, either get big or get out because you had to specialize, standardize, become larger in order to survive. And so that's what I taught farmers because that's what I'd been taught for first half of my 30-year academic career. And then in the 1980s, during the farm financial crisis, I come to conclusions for a lot of different reasons that that wasn't working. It wasn't going to work. Farmers were going broke. Rural communities were being decimated, you know, as the, they depended on those family farmers, not just for economic well-being, but for the social and cultural well-being. And they were going broke. And then I realized then we were polluting the environment with agricultural, chemical, and biological waste. And I came around to the conclusion that I would call now that that kind of agriculture wasn't sustainable. So I've been working on something I call sustainable agriculture ever since then, which is a, an agriculture that's capable of meeting the needs of people of the present, basically food needs, but also needs for employment and rural life and things of that nature, and do it in such a way that it doesn't diminish opportunities for those of the future. And that's what I call sustainability, ability to go on and on and on over decades, meeting the basic needs of people. And so that's kind of a in a nutshell, is my sort of fifty-year career. So, John, uh, what what's your take now on the present scene uh, when it comes to sustainable agriculture? Because you know we've all seen much more of the rise of organic or right. or local food. I mean, it doesn't always have to be formally organic. Right. But what right. what is your take on on what you see from your vantage point? Well, when I became involved in the sustainability issue in the late 1980s, that was an altogether different word. In fact, it was the kind of the organic farmers that were instrumental in getting uh, sustainability on the national agenda by a USDA program, then called the Low Input Sustainable Agriculture Program. But it was the organic farmers that kind of uh, collaborated with and joined forces with people that are concerned about the negative rural economic impacts and social impacts of industrial agriculture. And so those two came together then with farmers out there that were concerned about the rising cost of farm inputs. And so that's where the sustainable agriculture movement was kind of born. In the early years, uh, organic was kind of the old word. <laughs> You know, they were willing to deal with sustainability, but uh, conventional agriculture didn't want to deal with the idea that you could have an organic agriculture that could feed people. So that's where we were in the early years. But then as, as public demand grew for organic foods during the 1990s and the organic market began to grow, then the conventional agriculture people, and particularly the agri-food industry, the processors and retailers, become interested in organic. And, and that's what led to kind of the standardization of organic with the, you know, developing national organic standards. But that whole process began of trying to 
standardized uh, organic definition. So then you could kind of specialize and industrialize organic. And so the local food movement then was kind of born in response to the industrialization of organic. But it was still about the fundamental principles of, of sustainability that was driving it. It was the people in the organic movement originally that were concerned about taking care of the land, taking care of people, desirable quality of life, doing it in such a way that it provided multiple generations benefits that it could be sustained over the long run. And when it became industrialized, it lost that integrity, that ecological, social, economic integrity of the sustainability movement. And then the local food movement was kind of a response to that, the people that were disenchanted with the industrial organic. And so that was driving basically the or what I call the sustainable movement in the early 2000s. And I think where we are now, you see the regenerative agriculture movement kind of coming onto the forefront. And I think we'll hear a lot more about that in relation to climate change, because regenerative agriculture is, is really kind of where sustainable started. Rodale Institute, they wanted the name regenerative instead of sustainable, because they were talking about an agriculture that regenerates and renews its productivity, because ultimately that's the only way you can sustain it. Mm -hmm. So I think regenerative now is kind of the forefront of sustainability and will become sort of the driving force. I tell people, I don't care what you call it, whether you call it organic, local, <laughs> or regenerative, as long as it's sustainable, I'm for it. And sustainable has to be regenerative, but it also has to be resilient. I think that'll be the next phase. It has to be able to endure the shocks like we saw with the COVID pandemic. And it has to be resilient, but it also has to be resourceful or efficient. It has to meet the needs of people. And then eventually we get around the point of recognizing that we've got to meet the basic needs of all people for food, not just those of us that can afford to pay premium prices for organic or for right. local or for regenerative agriculture, but we've got to meet the needs of all people. So I think we're still very much on track. It's just taking a lot longer than me and a lot of other people <laughs> hoped it would back in the 90s. But I think we're still on track and moving toward a sustainable agriculture. But the resistance talking, is still there. We're talking with John Eichard, the author of, well, a number of books, but one I'm looking at, Small Farms Are Real Farms, right. which is a collection of your essays that you did right. uh, over the years. Now, John, I, I covered um, agriculture here at the Peoria Journal Star for a number of years, and I'd go out to the farms and the good people. I mean, just in Illinois, just as it is in your state of Iowa, where you live now, right? corn and soybeans dominant. You field right. after field. We go up and down these states. And, you know, these are good people, um, right. you know, families. But they're staying with that model, that industrial agricultural right. model. How do you break through on that? Well, I think the important to, to realize that th that industrial model is only being sustained now by very generous government programs. Because as you, as you go to kind of the industrial specialized, standardized, and then consolidate into larger and larger units, regardless of whether you're talking about large confinement animal feeding operations, you're talking about large core soybeans or just corn uh, production. Uh, when, when you go to that stage of consolidation, which is where you gain the efficiencies of economies of scale, 
you have an efficient system, but you've also created a very risky system because you're specialized in one commodity. You've got a lot of production risk there in terms of the weather and things of that nature. You've got a lot of market risk in terms of the prices for a single commodity rather than on a diversified farm with crop and livestock where you had multiple enterprises to kind of absorb the risk. If you lost on one, you can make it on the other. So that's risky. And then as you get larger, then you've got a lot of money invested and where these farmers are trapped now is with millions of dollars invested in land and machinery and everything for these large operations. But that's a very risky operation. And so the government programs basically have been oriented to propping up or absorbing the risk of this industrial agricultural system that we have out here today. These large farming operations and large confinement animal feeding operations basically are propped up by we the taxpayers who absorb most of the risk inherent in those operations. And we do it, for example, by paying 60% of the, of, the, of the cost of the crop insurance that allows farmers out here, the big farmers, not only to insure the yield, but also insure the price of the crop. We also do it in ways where the, the big confinement animal feeding operations that we're talking about are able to borrow money on government guaranteed loans to put up the capital to get them started in those particular operations. And then they're integrated then with the large processing operations. And again, as we saw during the pandemic, we come in with an emergency program where the government come in and said, we've got to keep this system flowing and things of this nature. That whole system would have, would have collapsed, then the whole system would collapse if we had a fundamental shift in government programs. And eventually, I think that's what will bring about the fundamental shift where we really see a major transition where the majority of our food, uh, I think even at, at some point, we'll probably all, always have kind of industrial operations in some segment of agriculture. But the dominant system will be a regenerative, resilient, resourceful system whenever we have a transition in government programs that, that support that transition to systems that basically can sustain themselves economically without the government programs in the long run. And so I think that's, that's the key is to develop the alternative to industrial agriculture and that we're doing that. It's a slow process because we're working against kind of the government incentives to maintain the status quo. But in, at the same time we're doing that, we need to continue to work for changes in government policy so that we can begin to support those that want to transition from industrial agriculture to a regenerative, resilient, sustainable agriculture. You make a number. We're talking with John Eichert, uh, professor emeritus at University of Missouri, an author and sustainable agriculture advocate. Um, John, you know, in your, in, in your teachings and, and books and writings, you talk about rural communities have suffered uh, greatly uh, through this whole industrial agricultural shift. Um, what what can be done there? Are they going to come back, as you say, if if you can, you know, change the the government funding uh, on agriculture? Well, I, I think what we what we need to do there, it will certainly help bring the, the rural communities back. It will reinvigorate the agricultural sector of many of agricultural many rural communities. Their primary resource or the thing that's most valuable to society as a whole is the productivity of their land. But what we're doing now with industrial agriculture, we, in fact, what makes industrial agriculture efficient is, is when you specialize and standardize 
and you consolidate, you can employ fewer people in the process of producing a given amount of output, or you can produce more with fewer people because you've got fewer managers of larger operations. And then you've mechanized and de-skilled the labor that goes into those operations. And so when you industrialize agriculture, basically you destroyed rural employment. You destroyed the managerial positions in farming, the family farming operation, but you also destroyed the quality labor skilled labor that was involved in management of, of uh, sustainable farming operations also. So that's what degraded or took people out of rural communities and destroyed those economies. Now, if you shift back to a sustainable agriculture, it's going to be more management intensive. The big advantage now of the industrial operations is not that they produce at a necessarily a lower cost per unit of production, but one manager, one investor can produce four more animals or farm four more acres with the industrial system than they can with the sustainable system. So sustainable systems are management intensive and they required skilled labor. And so if we get a, a a reasonable return, a fair return to the management and labor in a sustainable regenerative system, you're going to find more employment in rural areas. And that will be the start. But I think the things that will really regenerate rural agriculture is kind of devolution or bringing, shifting responsibility for managing government programs back to the local level where people know each other and care about each other and know the land and know what can be done there and have a lot more discretion in how we use the government support funds within those communities. And a big part of that, I think, will be shifted to programs that ensure local community food security. I've advocated using public utilities to ensure food security the way we did to bring electricity into the community where I grew up. I grew up without electricity, and now we have to bring public water out to rural areas. And the way we do to do a lot of different things, our sewers and our electrical systems and energy in the cities, but use the, the public utilities. And so when we, we shift the focus of development away from the national and state level and back to the community level, then we'll begin to see the more modest sized processing and distribution systems where we'll have localized food systems that will support local agriculture. But we need to change agriculture, which is the foundation upon we, these local food systems and local economies eventually will be built. John, do we have any examples of that right now or working towards it? Well, we have people all over the country that basically are, are working in that direction, but I can't come up with a place I've been trying to I've worked with two or three different communities and trying to bring them to the point of the community food utility. But you got a lot of people that are that are thinking in this area and talking about it. But again, in in trying to promote this kind of a movement, then you're you're working against the prevailing wisdom that you have to industrialize in order to have economic development. Our concept of economic development in this country is basically industrial economic development, as I've described it here. We've got to change that to sustainable development. But there's all sorts of people in different places that are working on parts of that, whether it's on the farming system, whether it's on the local food system, whether it's providing uh, uh, housing incentives in local areas, trying to regenerate, rebuild housing, or whether it's local energy or this new bill, the uh, what's it called? The deficit reduction right. bill has, has a, a lot of money in that that could go toward creating the kind of uh, a rural development that integrates agriculture with energy and conservation and a whole range of things. 
So the potential is there and we have people working on different pieces of it. But I can't go to a community and say, here is a community that stands out as an example. That's what we really need. We, we need some examples so people can see that this reality or this, this vision that I've talked about can see that it's possible. And, and once you see that something's possible, that it could in fact be done, then you're in a much better position to go out and ch begin to change public policy so that you can help other countries or other communities do basically the same sort of thing. John, what about the ag schools? Um, you know, they're, they're pretty involved with industrial agriculture. You, you know that from first first uh, first hand. Yeah, they're 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 very much involved with it, and I think it's been a major mistake for our land grant universities. I, you know, I got my education because of a land grant university. At that time, a poor kid from a farm in Southwest Missouri with just enough money to get through the first semester could go work their way through college at that time by working in the cafeterias, which is how I got through college. So that was, I, I just thought the land grant university system was the greatest system in the world. And we were out here trying to help farmers and help rural communities, but basically they've been captured by the economic interest of industrial agriculture. And it's not, not so much they're influenced by the, the grants and the research money that's funneled in by the large agribusiness corporations, but it's the political power of the, of the so-called, uh, what I call them, the agricultural establishment, not just the big agriculture corporations, but the uh, uh, large commodity organizations, pork producers, corn producers, soybean producers, but also large farm organizations such as the Farm Bureau and so on. They have tremendous political power and they, they can influence the budgets and have determined to a great extent the budgets of the public universities. And so that's forced a lot of people within. There's a lot of good people in those universities that are that are working against the grain, as I did for 15 years, working against the establishment to try to do something that's really good for the people. But I, I it's it's really uh, bothers me having gotten all of my education and 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 all, all my working life was in the land grant university system, North Carolina State, Oklahoma State University of Georgia, University of Missouri. I was always involved in the cooperative extension programs as well as on on campus teaching and research. Uh, so it's it's really bothersome to me to see how that emphasis shifted back in the mid 90s. And I'll keep this short. I was on a, a USDA committee to develop sort of the overall agenda for the country for agriculture and natural resource programming. And in the mid 90s, this committee, which included several extension directors and other people that were important across the state, I mean, across the country. Uh, came up with said sustainable agriculture is the future of extension. And we told people at that time that we needed to transition away from industrial agriculture and help create this new sustainable agriculture system. But 25 years later, we still haven't done it within the university system. But I do want to point out there are good people that are doing good things within these universities. And so I'm not condemning all of them. I'm just thinking we need fundamental change so that public universities serve the public good and not just the economic good of a few. Yeah, I think that's an important point because I think you know the people you know throughout your career and throughout agriculture, lots of good people on, you know, doing all kinds of things. And they are captured, as you say, some of them, uh, right. by the industrial model, by government's funding and all these things. I'm wondering now, John, one last thing, what's going to influence the public, the, the, the public that goes to the store to get their food, that maybe goes to the farmer's market, right. but what's, what, what do they need to do? 
because obviously they they hold power as well. Yeah, it's, I think it's education, information, and this is what it's hard to get out when your primary sources of information you should be able to trust are basically promoting an industrial agri-system that's not not only not good for farmers, not good for rural communities, it's not good for consumers. And, and you know as well as I do, you know that we've seen an epidemic of obesity and heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and a whole range of cancers associated with agriculture. And those have all increased dramatically with the industrialization of the food system. So we've got to be honest with the consumers out here and say, look, the food may be quick, convenient and cheap, but it's it's making us sick and it's going to bankrupt the nation because diet related health issues are a big part of the of the increasing, basically out of control health care costs in this country. And if we don't do something to change our food system, we're going to have a hard time keeping a lid on health care costs. And that health care cost doesn't include the misery that's associated with a teenage kid that gets diabetes at that stage and has to deal with it their whole life, particularly when what they're charging today for insulin in the, the drug market. But we've got to we've got to start telling the truth about this agricultural system. We've got to start telling the truth about its failure to feed people. We have more people that are classified as food insecure today than we had back in the 1960s. The food we're producing is not good for them. It's not healthful. It's not nutritious. And then also the story about what we've done in decimation of rural communities, what we're doing to the the water quality, the growing dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, Chesapeake Bay, various other places around the country linked to agriculture. I think if, if people were aware of the truth, where you overcome the propaganda that's put out there, we have the greatest, safest agriculture in the world, that farmers are great stewards of the resources. They may be trying hard, but they're caught in a system that doesn't allow them to do it. When we start telling the truth to people and we break through to people in general, that we need fundamental change, then I think we were going to we will get fundamental change. I've often said that the, the only power that's left in this nation and in the world that's greater than the corporate power that we've allowed to grow to just un, unreasonable levels of political and economic influence, the only power greater than that corporate power is basically the power of the people. But the people have to be informed in order to make good decisions to make the changes that need to be made. Yeah. And John, I we talking with John Eichert, the author of Small Farms or Real Farms and other books. Uh, John, I just think, flashing one last thing. Um, as you're speaking, I'm thinking one of the things I covered on the newspaper on an annual basis was the farm show here in Peoria, which uh, they have, I think, still have every year. And you know, you'd send a reporter down there. They may or may not know a lot about farming, depending on their who's who's being sent. Nowadays, the newspapers may be lucky to have anyone cover it at all. But you'd go down there, and it's all equipment or seed right. or right. you know everything there represents um, the industrial model. And right. so, somebody casually walking by or reading a story is going to assume that's that's what farming is. Right. And and yet, you're saying there's a whole world apart that right. we could we could adopt if if we had the mind right and there there are thousands perhaps hundreds of thousands of farmers out there that are already adopting these alternative systems and it's working for them it's it's more difficult to manage there may be more labor but it's profitable they have a good desirable quality of life economically socially and they feel good about what they're doing it's just it's just the difficulty of making the transition of breaking out of that mindset, as you say, that's reinforced 
continuously by intentional, I think, propaganda that basically presents the public with this is the agriculture of today and more and more technology is agriculture of the future. The universities, you know, openly are about technology development and transfer. It's not about informing people, educating people, empowering people to farm their, to make their own decisions and decide how they're going to farm their own farms and, and create their own communities. It's about technology development, technology transfer, and it's industrial technology development and industrial technology transfer. And so you have to break through that wall that's being put up there, that this, in fact, is the only alternative for future. There is a different way. There is a better way. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of farmers and consumers out here that, that are leading the way to a fundamentally new and different and better agriculture and food system for the future. Well said, John, as always. John Eichard. Uh, Professor Emeritus of the University of Missouri. Hey, we thank you so much. Thank you. For your time I appreciate and, the opportunity. Your eloquence on this issue uh, will hopefully do a little bit uh, in terms of <laughs> trying to reach out to folks. But uh, hey, it's one step at a time, right, John? Absolutely. Just do what we can do in our little piece of the world and trust that others will do the same. Very good. John, thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye.